gaming is becoming mainstream. Popular multiplayer games such as Fortnite and Minecraft present players with a massive virtual world to explore, to build, and compete within. Turn-based games such as Hearthstone and Magic are breeding a new generation of board game and card game aficionados. Social media networks like Twitch and YouTube have turned gaming into a voyeuristic sport that is out-competing many physical sports games for attention. Gilded is a platform for managing gaming teams. On Gilded, there are teams for games like League of Legends, Fortnite, and World of Warcraft. These teams use Gilded to manage calendars, Discord bots, forum software, documents, statistics, and recruiting. This might sound confusing. Why does a gaming team need document management and calendars and analytics? Are we talking about a video game team or a software company? To understand Gilded, you need to understand the rapidly changing modern gaming ecosystem. Eli Brown is a founder of Gilded.gg. He joins the show to talk about the world of gaming, its intersection with social media, and the fascinating engineering problems involved in building a platform for gaming teams. Before we get started, the Find Collabs Open is our second hackathon for Find Collabs. Find Collabs is the company I'm building. It's a place to meet collaborators and build projects. And our second hackathon has $2,500 in prizes. We've got prizes for the best machine learning project, music project, art project, podcasting, cryptocurrency, computer game design. I'm sure some of the listeners to this episode might be interested in that one. And it's a great place for creativity, collaboration, I hope you check it out. I hope you are inspired by Find Collabs and would love to get your feedback. You can go to findcollabs.com slash open to find out more or just go to Find Collabs and make a project. Thanks for listening and let's get on with today's show. Eli Brown, you are the founder at Gilded. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's 2019. Describe the state of online gaming. Online gaming. Yeah. So I think the first thing, which is obvious to most people, is that it's growing really, really quickly. So now by depending which games you count, um, no matter which sort of games, which genres you count, we're well above... 800 million people playing these online games. And one of the big trends that is sort of that I think most people have kind of overlooked is that there's been this big shift from games that are more of like solo games into games that are more team based. So five to 10 years ago, a lot of the really competitive games were games like Starcraft and Warcraft and Hearthstone and stuff like this. And all of a sudden now, all of the top esports are team-based. So we have games like uh, CSGO, League of Legends, Dota, Apex Legends, Fortnite, I mean, all these games. And it really seems like esports and online gaming is kind of following this trend that you know we obviously see in traditional sports where the largest sports franchises are all based on teams. So we have the NBA, NFL, MLB, and all that kind of stuff. I think if I could summarize, I would say there's two big things. One, that it's it's growing really, really fast. And two, we're sort of seeing the shift into uh, sort of team-based competitive competitive play. Are you a gamer? 
Yeah, I am. So that's kind of what got me into software engineering. I was a gamer before I was an engineer and I got into it, I think like, like a lot of people because I wanted to make games and yeah, that's sort of, I think motivated my whole, my whole career. What are your favorite games historically? So I think, I think I'm going to have to give it to Age of Empires 2, Age of Kings. That was the first game that really got me sucked into online play. And StarCraft was an awesome game. I played that a lot, but uh, it's, it's a little bit sad now because the RTS genre is, is dying a little bit, but I just remember Age of Kings just getting me sucked into online games. And then I think I would have to also give a give a shout out to the, the old Diablo series. Yeah, really, now, are, really. Are you, are you just, are you just a, a computer gamer? Or did you ever get into things like magic or poker or like, you know, terrestrial games? Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of overlap between these communities. So I was also into magic. So I played Magic the Gathering a lot of my early life. And it's interesting because there is also this overlap with people that play poker and stuff like that. I never got into that, but I do know people that did it. There's a lot of overlap with the shooter community and poker, which I think is kind of interesting. In the magic community, I'm a longtime magic player. And I actually, I was just talking to a, to a friend last night because I'm going to, uh, there's a pre-release this weekend. Apparently, I don't play that much magic, but like I happen to be in town. You know, I'm going to Austin for hanging out with some people and there's a pre-release and there's a new set coming out and we're actually doing a two-headed giant event. And I, I actually think, you know, what you're saying about people increasingly wanting to play on teams, uh, that's kind of why I took the circuitous, circuitous route of questioning because I wanted to probe at whether or not you were a magic player because it's interesting that even in magic, there seems to be an increase in this team-based play. Yeah, I would definitely, definitely agree with that. One of the things that I thought was probably the most fun I had playing Magic was when I kind of got back into it a few years ago, and I was at Microsoft at the time, and this was up in Washington where Wizards of the Coast is, and they had like a company league, so it would be like Microsoft and Google and Amazon and all these companies, and you'd play in this team and go compete against other companies, and it was one of the most fun ways to play Magic that I think I remember, and I think Wizards is uh, trying to get into that more because they've been moving into sort of this online Magic the Gathering thing, which is interesting in its own right because magic has super complex rules and it just there's a weird challenge there around making it like an online game but besides that i think that's also bringing like a larger focus on team-based a sort of multiplayer yeah as a software engineer why does that seem like a difficult problem why does implementing magic i mean magic has kind of a uh, checkered history in terms of moving online i don't know if you remember the whole leaping lizard like originally like the first version of moto they tried to outsource it and that didn't work so well and then like uh, it's been a slog i think they're they're in a much better place now which is you know i'm thankful for that because now they've got you know blizzard breathing down their neck with hearthstone but yeah, from an engineering perspective, why do you think Magic is is a hard, you know, spe- speculating, of course, why, why does Magic seem like a hard game to implement to you? Yeah, I think about this a lot. And I'm not sure I have a great answer. But I think Magic is interesting because the rules actually lend better to human communication than like computer, like software communication. For example, Magic has these really complex phases. And like, if you play Magic by the book, it's like six or seven phases, and you're supposed to move between each phase and like all this stuff. And there are sort of like soft rules around like, the way you communicate with someone to sort of move through those. And when you put that into a computer and you lose all of that human interaction, it first, if you do it by the book, it feels very mechanical and sort of formulaic and it loses a little bit of the fun. And if you don't, then you end up in like weird, ambiguous situations because magic (laughs) has a lot of really complex mechanics that can 
just so many edge cases. It's like one of the hard things about programming is when you don't have sort of like this symmetry and magic just does not have that. There are just so many weird edge cases and strange mechanics. And Hearthstone is an interesting case because it's Hearthstone is kind of like what a card game would look like if it was designed to be played on a computer. So like all of the mechanics work really well, like it fits in like a certain amount of time instead of like these phases. And yeah, I thought that was just really interesting. And I'm, I'm curious to see if they can make magic work online um, and sort of overcome the inherent difficulty and in having created a card game that's for humans to play and not for computers to sort of compute. We will get to discussing Gilded and online gaming a little bit more, but since we're on the topic, and you seem like you're willing to speculate a little bit, when you look at these open AI competitions, and they master things like Go, or they master things like uh, StarCraft even, how does that compare to what you would consider like if they would have mastered magic? Because I look at magic, I'm like, I'll start getting scared of the AI if it can master magic, but it seems pretty far from that. So I think it's, first of all, I think it's kind of inevitable that at some point AI will master all of these games. I do think that there's this sort of hierarchy of difficulty based on the game mechanics. And in particular, one area that AI has a big advantage on humans are all the mechanical interactions. So on StarCraft, a computer does a much, much better job of doing things like splitting Marines to avoid banelings. And if you're not familiar with that, basically it's a really mechanically intense movement where you have to split up a bunch of units really quickly. So most games sort of have this balance between being mechanically demanding versus being strategically demanding. And I think the first games that AI is going to conquer are games that are more mechanically demanding. So for instance, I think it's actually easier to create an AI that is top level at StarCraft than it would to, for example, let's say Age of Empires, because Age of Empires has higher strategical requirements and lower mechanical requirements. Dota is an interesting case because it's a team-based game. Some of the heroes have um, very high mechanical requirements. Some of them have low ones, but you actually, as long as you get the mechanics down, the challenge is in, in actually coordinating all of the players. So I think it's really cool that OpenAI in particular is tackling that one first, because I'm not sure exactly how I would rate the difficulty of mastering Dota against a very strategically demanding game like Age of Empires. So yeah, I'm curious to see how that works out. If I had to guess, I would say that StarCraft will be conquered before Dota, and then at some point in the future, we'll have games with a lot more human interactions that are more strategy and less mechanics, kind of like, I think, magic. I'm not sure if many efforts have been made there, but yeah, I'm really curious to see how that would go. Well, I think there have been some efforts have been, that have been made. In fact, I remember at a friend in college who was kind of thinking about this a little bit. He was trying to work on it, and it just seems so hard. Like I think there's something about magic that makes it very, very hard to figure out how to approach modeling an AI that can, you know, solve for so many different circumstances. Anyway, that's that's for another show. So, getting into <laughs> online gaming, I get the sense that Twitch. And to some extent, other social platforms have had a dramatic impact on some of this team-based play, some of the other market trends in, in gaming. How has the interaction of, of social networking and gaming affected the industry? 
Yeah, so I think I think you're right that Twitch is one of the really big ones. I would say before that, Steam did a lot as well. I think Steam was one of the first platforms that really got PC gamers sort of together and playing these games like CSGO and Dota and all of this kind of stuff. And I think Twitch did a lot to bring it to the mainstream because when we talk about like esports, that term, there are a lot of people that play games, but what Twitch did was actually open it up to all of these people that might just like watch someone play Fortnite while they're like eating cereal in the morning. Twitch had a massive, massive impact there. And I think I would say Steam was big. Twitch was big. Discord is really big now as well in terms of the way that they are essentially making it really easy to form these groups and sort of communicate and play together and all that stuff. So I think that Twitch is actually responsible for maybe like almost single-handedly for broadening the reach of esports um in like a pretty a pretty substantial way what is a guild yeah so there's there's weird terminology around this so traditionally a guild is like a group of people usually on like an mmorpg so the the different terms you'll hear on games are guilds which are traditionally like i said mmorpgs we have clans which sometimes are on mmorpgs but more often shooter games like csgo Um, some games refer to them as teams so you have a team on fortnite like I think most newer games, like a League of Legends team. So, um, oh yeah, and then we have like EVE Online and Star Citizen, which I believe refers to the groups as orgs. So I think over time this is going to standardize, but right now we're calling them teams because I think that's where we're going to land, but the terminology is a bit fractured at the moment. Describe the interactions among members of these teams or these guilds. Yeah, so there's a whole sort of set of things that, teams and guilds want to do you know with each other so i think the basic one is communication so that's chat so it could be text chat real-time text chat voice chat and then there's a whole bunch of sort of higher level organizational behavior on top of that so if you play world of warcraft for instance you might have these like 20 40 person raids and there's just like no way to actually coordinate that many people without using something like a calendar. It just doesn't really work to do that over voice chat. Once you get into big groups like that as well, you also sort of want to be able to recruit people to your guild. You also have, you often have like application process and people fill out a form and submit it. So there's that whole thing. And then on the shooter and league of and like MOBA games, there's also this sort of behavior where teams want to find other teams to play against. In almost all games, the in-game matchmaking doesn't really work that well. And it seems like that's that's just this sort of whole other means of communication that is sort of important to teams. So it sounds like there is this set of tools that teams need. And these sets of tools or these tools are... You know, you could do the the thing where you just like grab the tools that exist, like grab Google Calendar, grab Slack or grab Discord or whatever, and patch these things together into a workflow for a gaming team. But my understanding of Gilded, your company, is is that you kind of have a vision for tools that are more specifically designed for the world of gaming. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. So sort of when I had this idea, we played this MMORPG called Rift, and we just wanted all that stuff. Like We just wanted a place where people could submit an application to join our guild, and we could post some strategies. And all you could really do is, like you mentioned, either use like Google Docs or Google Calendar or create a website and try to put like a PHP bulletin board on it. And it was just very broken and very stupid. So I think yeah, those are pretty much your options. And we created Gilded to kind of solve that. So you can create a team and in 30 seconds, we sort of give you all of those tools. And one limitation that I think a lot of companies haven't realized, I think Facebook actually ran into this issue when they tried to to incorporate uh, streaming into their platform, is that Google Docs and Google Calendar don't work for a lot of gamers because gamers have their sort of online pseudonyms and they don't like to use their real life accounts for all of their gaming communication. So there's exceptions to this, but but very very large populations of gamers still operate in that way. That's one of the one of the things that's sort of challenging about using Google Docs and Google Calendar. It's like all of a sudden everyone's using their real life accounts and now they have another website to check and it's just too much friction and it just didn't work very well for a lot of guilds. Huh, so so pseudonymity is basically something that is important to the gaming world. Yeah, so I'm interested to see how this plays out over time, because as esports become more like real sports, I'm not sure if in the future everyone will just go by pseudonyms, but right now, people keep their gaming life mostly separate from their real life, so they have a different name and a different identity, and it's usually not tied back to their real life identity. So products like Slack, um, products like Google Calendar, Google Docs, um, Facebook streaming, like I mentioned, sort of have this problem where unless they embrace this completely different sort of system of identity, it's really hard for them to build competitive products in this space. It's interesting looking at the question of pseudonymity versus anonymity versus real names across the spectrum of different social platforms that we have. Like I think about Twitter. Twitter allows pseudonymity. Perhaps that is one reason why Twitter is so successful. Facebook does not allow pseudonymity. On Quora, you have basically either your real identity or pure anonymity. There's not really much in between. I guess you could make like a company account if you wanted to do pseudonymity. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of an interesting trend in, in, in the world. Yeah, I think this is really important. And I think that social media has exploded so fast that we haven't really had time to sort of introspect on why these things are important and where they're important and sort of what what different benefit you get from these different systems of identity. So the fact that Facebook enforces a real name policy is bad in some ways, but in some ways it's very good. It does make the platform feel safer. It makes it feel easier to trust the people you see on there. To some extent, I think it reduces the amount of flame wars that kind of happen because there is some component to 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 this where people are less likely to be toxic if it's attached to their real life identity. But I think on the, the other hand, there's real value in anonymous and sort of pseudo-anonymous um, systems because often those those platforms have more real conversations because you're able to ask questions and answer questions in a way that isn't sort of biased or um, sort of influenced by your concerns about attaching that question or opinion to your identity. And I think Reddit has actually done the best job of this. So Twitter is kind of a mix, like you said, but in many cases for a given topic, you'll find the most real and honest conversations on Reddit because 
people don't have the motivation to sort of think about how the things they say affect their image. And there's pros and cons there, but there's a lot of value to it. And I think that hopefully we're going to figure out how these all sort of piece together. It feels like we're not quite there yet. And I don't really know exactly how to solve that. Describe the tools that you have built in Gilded. Yeah. So when we first launched it, we had forums, we had a calendar, media albums, recruiting tools, and documents, sort of like longer form documents. And the first one that really caught on was the calendar, because uh, there's no good way really for gamers to schedule events right now. We have really popular tools like Discord, but and Discord does an awesome job of real-time chat, but real-time chat doesn't work for everything. And one of the things it particularly doesn't work at all for is scheduling events. Forums are interesting because both in gaming and increasingly in like the sort of work communication tools space, it feels like there's been this sort of backlash where it's like, hey, uh, Slack isn't good for asynchronous communication because it distracts you and we want to have longer form discussions. And it feels like there's almost been like this sort of like revival towards revival of forum software, which is interesting to me. But gamers in particular really love forums. I think it's just this sort of ingrained cultural thing. Like every game has a game forum and you go and read strategies. And I don't know, I think it's, I think it's really interesting in that regard. So we started out with just those, and we've added a few more things onto that over time. It is hilarious the the uh, persistence of forums, the never never dying social network entity. I speaking of gaming, like I when I was learning poker, I would spend hours and hours because I was one of the people who did do the conversion from Magic to poker. I would spend hours and hours and hours on. There's a forum called Two Plus Two that you may or may not have heard of. But basically, it's the dominant poker forum. And and for all I know, it could still be dominant. It wouldn't surprise me at all if it was still the quote-unquote dominant, I guess, social networking platform for poker, partially because the game is so simple and it's like all you need to, to do to really share your, you know, like the equivalent of like where you share your live stream from a Fortnite session like on Twitch. It's pretty easy to share a single hand history of poker on a forum. And I don't think like there's that much like technological improvement you could. I mean, people do live stream their poker sessions. I guess that's a little bit different. Anyway, just hilarious forums, man, forums. <laughs> I think it's really interesting because the tools, the sort of like the tools and the communication platforms you use very much influence like the content and the discussion people end up having. And I think the fact that forums are a little bit more inaccessible and you have to like go and type like a real well thought out thing. It's like, you can't just like type five words and just bang enter. Um, you have to actually think about it. And you, and the expectation is that you write like a paragraph or something. And I think just that barrier to entry actually significantly elevates the conversation. And I just think that's, that's, that's so interesting that you could just take a chat room and just visually turn it into a forum. And I think it actually would like substantially change the the conversation for better or worse. So you got you got a lot of things that I see you could potentially work on. Uh, you're already working on a lot of things. I, just to kind of fast forward the conversation a little bit, can you tell me the hardest engineering problem that you have worked on or that you're working on right now within Gilded? <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So what I had sort of noticed before we made Gilded was that a lot of the problems that we were solving, I'll give you one as an example, is let's say you 
start playing a game and you want to find other people to play with instead of just playing alone. So if you take any given game, like let's just say Destiny, there are tools for that. There's like destinylfg.net. There's a Destiny subreddit where you can try to find groups. And what I noticed is that for every game, there's like these, these tools that exist only in that game. And one of the things we wanted to do from the start was we wanted to make sure that basically we could spin up any game and all of our tools worked across all games. And the, the difficulty there is that we had to basically create some abstraction over a game and it ends up being really, really hard because if you're trying to figure out who can play with other people, the rules get really complicated actually. So for example, people cannot play with, if you play, you know, Call of Duty on PS4, you can't play with people on PC. So there's this platform aspect. And if you're in North America, you probably don't want to play with people in Japan. But uh, that's not always true because if you play Fortnite, actually people can play across consoles. So Xbox and PC can play together. And on games like World of Warcraft, you can really only play with people on the same server but wait, you can pay $60 and transfer to another server. So what we ended up kind of doing is building this big abstraction that essentially classifies games and allows us to describe every game as sort of like this set of properties. And then as we go, we can describe this game. Basically, you can think of it as like a big JSON blob. And it sort of just plugs into our system now. But it took a lot of work to do that because it's a hard problem to deconstruct. And I think that that was one of the, the engineering problems that we had to take on kind of early to make sure this worked at all, because otherwise we sort of get into the thing where we have to spend a whole bunch of effort every single time a game comes up. So I think that was that was probably one of the early ones. Wow. Okay. So I can imagine every game as a denormalized entity where you have a Discord channel and a subreddit and a Twitch stream and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I can imagine it being useful to kind of have this, I guess, domain-specific language or config system where you sort of represent everything in just a JSON blob. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think as a byproduct of this, we've probably built one of the biggest catalogs of just game data. It's like for every game, we have this this very um, sort of now verbose description of how it works. We have, you know, the, the the Twitch channel, the subreddit, all this stuff. Another really interesting dimension on this is that let's say you play League of Legends and on League of Legends, you have to have different roles. So you need like a support and a carry and all this stuff. So if a team has four people and no support, then we're sort of, we built this engine where we'll, we'll, we'll recommend you teams. Well, we actually have to know that and we have to have some concept of what teams fit together. And your first instinct would go would be to go and say, hey, MOBAs have this behavior where it's like this. But this actually is like, this is actually a characteristic that applies to a broad set of games. For example, Overwatch is exactly the same. So Overwatch has actually taken some of these like MOBA concepts and now the shooter game has the same sort of thing. So at first we modeled this as a MOBA thing and then we had to pull it out. And basically it's been a lot of work to make sure that we can model these games in a way that sort of allows them to plug into our, our system and allow us to support like hundreds of games at once. What's your engineering stack look like? Yes, on the front end, we use React. So it's a a web app. We use MobX, which we've really, really loved so far. I think we're probably one of the bigger, if not the biggest MobX, 100% MobX app out now. That's like a Redux, a Redux-like state management thing? Yeah, it is. So the quick TLDR of the difference is that Redux, basically you use these, you know, action creators and uh, it's been a while since I used it. Uh, Yeah. Producers, all this stuff. And you sort of describe your state in this like immutable set of 
information that is kind of like global variables. MobX, you basically define usually data as properties of components or on stores, and then it's reactive. So you basically store your state, and then everything is sort of computed from that using some MobX magic uh, in the background. So that's worked really well for us. On the back end, we use Node, uh, Postgres, and Redis, and this is all running in uh, AWS. Now, why did you go with AWS rather than some more because you're you're a a millennial like me. Why don't why not go with like a Heroku or a Firebase or some other hipster backend as a service? <laughs> yeah, we. Um, it's a good question because there's always this balance between how hipster do you want to be and how much do you want to get stuff done. And for us, I think I think a lot of people overcomplicate deployments. I think AWS. To be honest, this wasn't like a very principled decision. It's not like we think AWS is the best out there. But what I do think is that AWS is very like proven out. A lot of engineers know how to use it. You can Google anything and you get answers. And that's really good for us. So, I mean, our deployment process is just like this automated thing where you just put a zip file into Elastic Beanstalk and it just rolls it out. And that's really all we've needed and probably all we'll need for the foreseeable future. Amazing. Okay. Well, more specific to what you are working on. So you've got this this like config language that describes every game. And I can imagine there's some kind of like basically compilation or rendering phase that you so I, I can imagine actually a lot of interesting problems around this config language. So first of all, you need to like either crowdsource or manually gather the data yourself to add to the config language. And then you need a way to render the different config things. I guess, tell me more about how the your, your config fits into the overall model of Gilded. Yeah. So yeah, there's a few interesting challenges there. One is sourcing all of this data. And early on, so when I started this, it was just me just like hacking stuff together. And all of a sudden I needed data for like, you know, a hundred plus games. And I didn't want to do it myself. Um, it took a really long time, but um, what I was able to do some was break that apart and use, uh, what is that? Oh yeah. Amazon Mechanical Turk to just sort of allow people to plug in information. Beautiful. And Beautiful. Uh, so that was, that was a really, really cool use of that, that I, I it took me too long to think of because I was- So they were capable. And- the, the, the Turks were capable of doing this. Yeah. Yeah. If you break it apart into simple enough problems, it works pretty well. So we don't do that anymore because now we have actual admin tools and now we have people on the team that can go and just fill all this stuff out. And it's actually faster than trying to break it into mechanical Turk tasks. But yeah, that was that was one interesting problem. Uh, the second one was, yeah, at first we just had a big JSON blob and we just added to it. And uh, yeah, one of the problems that, that we run into very quickly is a lot of this kind of information is derived. We also have things like, for example, each game has like its own set of colors. And then there's like slightly different colors that are computed that, you know, are used in different parts of the UI. And all of a sudden at runtime, we're computing this stuff for like 400 games. So we had to create like this, this sort of pre-build step. And then now the, the problem that we're solving now is that we have this gigantic JSON blob of data and it's really hard to break it apart. And we don't really want to make the client load, you know, 200 kilobytes of JSON for our games at at the time we started up. So yeah, this has been something that we've run into kind of a series of technical challenges for. I think that if we do it right, it will be a differentiator. It's I think it, but I think it is like important prerequisite work. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds pretty hard because it's like, I assume you have some pretty rich objects that you need to load there, like loading a Twitch channel. I I don't know to what degree you can like do server-side rendering with some of this stuff. 
I mean, how are you playing with this with this problem? So in terms of server-side rendering, we actually took a very different approach to this, which I think has worked out really well so far. So um, server-side rendering does a few things well. One is that it can decrease the load time on the client if the HTML is hydrated correctly. The second is that it's good for web crawlers and uh, all that kind of stuff. And I've been thinking on this for a long time, and I really wanted to avoid server-side rendering because it's a huge pain in the ass, and it's just something that that I, I just totally wanted to avoid. I, the solution we came up with that I've been really happy with so far is that we basically have our single-page app and an index.html, and this is just sitting in CloudFront, so it's always cached, always on the CDN. And yeah, AWS has this thing now called AWS Lambda, and it allows you to basically run JavaScript on the edge. And what we can kind of do is if when a request sort of hits the edge, the CDN, to request you know, some certain URL, if it's a crawler or if it's something that is like building like open graph data, like Twitter or Facebook or whatever, we can just hit our server and then just append that information to the index.html. And then they get like an HTML with like hydrated information. But the the net effect, which is kind of cool, is that on the client, whenever you load uh, Gilded, you always load the same cached JavaScript bundles, the same index, and you don't have to wait for a server to render anything. In our in our tests, it's actually a lot faster to do that than it is to hydrate the HTML on the back end. The client can usually do that faster as long as you can serve it the files quickly. This is amazing because I've talked to people like Fastly and Cloudflare, and they're thinking about this problem quite deeply like, oh, Edge is the thing like edge workers edge lambdas edge functions as a service these things are going to be necessary to run the kind of performant workloads that that we need we need to move computation to the edge we've already done that with with uh, with content with cdns we're now doing it with computation i think you are the first use case to my, to my recollection that really has that's a really really compelling and kind of subtle use case. Yeah, I was surprised because we had looked around for answers to this for a really long time and it took us too long to figure it out, but I think, you know, a few months into it it just kind of clicked and we tried it out and it was very very cool. And I do I do sort of agree that there's a lot of value in running this stuff on the edge. We've had a few other use cases that have been really, really cool. I can't really think of them at the moment, but yeah, I think we're, we're finding more sort of scenarios where we do just run us want to run a small amount of JavaScript on the edge instead of having it hit our backend servers and come all the way back. So I think that's a trend we're going to see continuing, and I think there's a lot more to explore there. But I would, I, I should probably do some. It'd be interesting to do like a write up about this this Lambda thing at some point because um, it's worked really well for us, and I'm I've, I expected there would be some downsides because I was like, why why don't I see other people doing this? And we haven't run into any so far. So yeah, I think it's kind of interesting. And if you built, this is kind of a weird question, but if you build like a strategic core competency in running stuff at the edge, like broadly speaking, uh, running these kinds of workloads, the the whether you want to call it like a, a late comp late binding, you know, compilation workload for your configuration language, or just more generally like running computation at the edge and serving highly performant, you know, complex front end applications. How do you think that core competency could be useful to the future of Gilded? So I think that one of the challenges that we've we sort of um, wanted to solve here is, I sort of think 
So, so here's an interesting case. So Discord, for instance, is a single page app. It's like a JavaScript app and it all just kind of runs in the browser. And I think one of the challenges that Discord has is all the servers are private. So you can't really like Google a server. If you do click into it, there's nothing there. And for us, it's like really important for a team that they have some sort of public identity. So we're not going to succeed unless our presentation, not only to users, but also to um, search engines, to different sites that do uh, present open graph data and things like OMBED, like all this stuff. Once you go down this rabbit hole, we have to actually nail that because we have, we give teams a public presence and it's not clear at the moment with the latest sort of, uh, you know, trendy JavaScript stuff, how you create a really good, really performant single page application and have all of that stuff without constantly maintaining server-side rendering. And server-side rendering has gotten better in a lot of regards, but in my opinion, it is still a very high engineering cost. And there are all kinds of issues that can kind of creep up and bite you there. So I do think that if we get this right, and I don't think we've totally gotten it right yet, but if we do get it right, I think it will sort of be a differentiator for us in some sense, or it will at least allow us to build the product that we want to build without sinking a whole bunch of engineering energy and server, you know, uh, resources into server-side rendering. What is the product that you want to build? What's the big vision? Yeah. So our mission is to connect esports teams. So if we succeed, then for every game on every platform, you go to find a team, you go to Gilded. When you Google the name of a team, the first result is Gilded. Basically, if you think of like Twitter as, or Facebook as like a platform for people and Twitter as a platform for, uh, kind of people and fake people and venture capitalists, then I think of Gilded as sort of the platform for teams. And we should be just like when you go to Instagram, you can type in any celebrity and they show up. That's what I imagine Gilded to be. And I imagine that we give you all of the tools you really need to organize a guild and to sort of find other teams, discover other teams in one place. I think that the the next step for us as well is if we're the platform that has all the teams, I think that it makes sense for us to be the platform where teams go to play in leagues and to play in tournaments. Um, I think of this kind of like Facebook events. It's kind of interesting because Facebook became the biggest platform in the world for for um, scheduling events just because events are something, it's just like a manifestation of how people interact and Facebook has all the people. So I think that the platform that has all of the teams should eventually own tournaments and leagues and all of that stuff. Love the vision. And now as with a good startup vision, at at the kind of stage you're, you're kind of series A, I think you or you just what have you I don't know seed or series A whatever you don't have to disclose on something something early. Basically, you're kind of trying to have your product future converge with the future of the industry. Like the industry is not quite in in the place that you're describing yet, but you're kind of like running as fast as you can to catch up to the future when it arrives. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I think we're taking kind of the bet we're taking on the future. One of those is that obviously uh, esports is going to continue to grow at the pace it's going to. But I think the one that we're not totally sure about is that we're taking a bet that the future of esports is going to be based on teams. People are going to organize around teams. And the same way that people do with traditional sports like NBA, NFL, etc., teams kind of become the basis of identity and organization and everything from there. And this is kind of an important bet because we've had a lot of esports startups sort of come and go and some are still around and whatever. And 
some of them are like social networks for gamers. And they're basically taking a bet that the future of esports is going to be based on players. And we're taking a bet that it will be based on teams. So yeah, just like you mentioned, we don't know exactly how it's going to turn out. I think the future is going to trend in that direction. And we're kind of taking a bet on that. Why is server-side rendering so painful? (laughs) I think a few reasons. I think inherently, it's just a hard problem to sort of build out all of your HTML on a server. Um, It gets way more complicated when you have async loading. And, you know, there are these these sort of products and frameworks that that now advertise that it's really easy. I could be wrong here. When I did it before at my my previous previous job, we did this for Instagram web a bit. It ended up creating a lot of a lot of issues and I did not see any clear way out of it. So um, unless something's gotten a lot better in the last year or two, I think it's just like a fundamentally hard problem to solve. I think it also has just like some inherent downsides. Like you're not gonna get around the fact that all these requests you have to run on a server somewhere and rendering a ton of JavaScript on a node server is just not, it's like not a performant thing to do. So if you're going to end up serving a ton of people with this, you're also going to invest a lot of resources in that. And that's not only computing resources, but it's engineering resources because you're going to have this separate environment for it. You're going to be scaling them all the time. You have to monitor them. And I would just really like to take all that engineering energy and put it into building our product. So when I think about the problem of server-side rendering, it's basically I want to have my pages as rendered as possible when the user requests them in contrast to a situation without server-side rendering where like I request a Java I request a React a set of React files and an HTML and the rendering happens in my browser now I can see you hitting bottlenecks where the content is more dynamic and and like can only be loaded on the browser side. What are the fun like what are the fundamental issues of doing that just like precompiled, you know, HTML stuff? So I think one of the fundamental ones is that you don't know all of the resources that you're going to need or how the client is actually going to render until you've rendered it in a real browser. So especially if you do async loading, like when you hit gilded.gg right now, you load our main bundle. And then depending on what different things you load on the site, we'll serve you sort of these code split bundles. And then that will make, you know, web requests. And depending on the content of that request, it might, you know, load some widget that requires some other JavaScript bundle. And the thing is, is that this is determined by the browser engine. And like when you run, when you load Chrome, there are so many different things that can happen. It's like your network requests can fail, like your browser can load it in a weird way. It's just like, there's this whole mess around like how browsers render things, like different versions of browsers, um, different you know operating systems. It's just like a huge mess. And you can approximate that as best you can on the back end, but just fundamentally, it's always going to be a little bit different to run something in an actual browser and go down those paths and then discover all these resources that you need to load in this HTML that you have to hydrate. And I think the best we're going to be able to do is an approximation. And, you know, to be fair, the approximation might end up being good for 95% of 90, 95% of requests, but that 5% is is like this thing that just eats engineer, engineering resources because it's really hard to debug. You won't know why it's not working sometimes. And I think this is something that we can mitigate, but I don't think it's fundamentally solvable. You say your database is Postgres? Not to, not to change the topic, yeah. topic completely. But. <laughs> I love, love talking about Postgres. Why Postgres? 
Honestly, I was not a database expert when I started this project, but I asked some people that I think are really smart and they recommended Postgres. And I think it was in retrospect, one of our better decisions that was a little bit based on luck because uh, Postgres has been fantastic. The, the Postgres team makes updates really, really fast. I've been really impressed with that. And it's just one of the things, it, it's things like developers like to work with it and it makes it easier to hire developers when you have a stack that isn't painful to work with. Like Postgres is great. Redis is great. React's great. And it just sort of contributed to that. Why? Why do people like to work with it? Like I've heard there's like a plugin or extension ecosystem or something. Or what makes it easy to work with? So I think one of the big ones for us is just common table expressions. That's something that Postgres has that a lot of engines don't. And it's actually really, really awesome. <laughs> like saves you a lot of pain in a lot of cases. Um, I do find that errors with Postgres are generally Googleable. It's like, it's hard to sort of track down everything. I wouldn't, I wouldn't stick it to like, oh, there's this one thing Postgres does, but they have all these sort of utility functions and different patterns that, for example, MySQL doesn't. And it's just, it's just a very rich language, a very feature rich database. And in a lot of cases, these, these really save you a lot of pain. In particular, I can think of one now. A lot of the Postgres index constructs, in particular, JSONB and Postgres is fantastic. And the fact that you can, I think that Postgres is a far better JSON uh, database than like MongoDB is. It's, it's their JSONB functionality is fantastic. The fact that you can index JSONB fields is awesome. And you don't always just want to dump things into JSONB columns. It's good to have, you know, a database schema, but there are some cases where JSONB works amazingly well. And Postgres is just, has really impressed us with that implementation. Why hasn't gambling become a bigger part of the online gaming world? Or has it? How is the world of gambling and online gaming converging? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think that it's actually going to grow a lot very soon. There was this recent Supreme Court decision, well, maybe a year or two ago, that, if I understand it correctly, basically legalized gambling for online games in a lot of places. And what we saw after that was a whole bunch of esports startups sort of sort of uh, spin up around gambling. And I personally think that as long as that holds, it's going to become a big thing. I think that the first esports startup that can gamify gambling and make it really fun for esports matches is going to do really well. There's actually this platform that surprisingly not many people know about. It's called Skills, and they've sort of made a really big company around allowing people to gamble on casual mobile games. And when I first heard that, I almost couldn't believe that that could be a big market because I couldn't imagine that all these people that play like these really casual mobile games would want to bet money on them. But they found this really underserved portion of sort of the market. They battled through all the legal challenges there and they created this product that allows you to just bet money that you're going to beat someone at like Candy Crush or something. (laughs) Not actually Candy Crush, but like some really casual game. And they've done really well with that. You know, it all comes back to magic. Isn't it funny how the earliest versions of magic had anti? And like, I think anti is like an awesome mechanic, but they basically had to take it out because it was too taboo. Yeah, that's true. I I totally forgot about that. I when I was playing magic, I would be at like card shops when I was like 14 or 15. And I'd feel pressured to play these anti games and older guys would come and try to like, take my cards and all this kind of stuff. And um, money draft. uh, No, what, what is that? 
Oh, money draft. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have interrupted you, but uh, just, you brought me back. Money drafting is is uh, maybe actually not legal, and so it's definitely something I didn't do, but it's like where you <laughs> hypothetically or theoretically can say like before the draft, like you do a three-on-three, oh, it comes back to the teams also, like three-on-three draft and everybody puts up 20 bucks or 100 bucks or $10,000 if you're you know an ex-poker player, and you draft, you know, you like do a draft and it's like, you know, first one to five win, first one to five match win wins wins the wins the dollars you put up and the cards yeah I, that that hypothetically sounds super fun i think Hypothet- um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the challenges here are legally really but i think that if we if we end up with a game like fortnite that kind of explodes and they have built-in gambling oh man that whoever does that is going to make so so much money because it would be so fun to just get on with your friends and like bet some money on these games it doesn't even have to be a ton of money but just enough to make it feel like there's kind of stakes on it i don't know the legal challenges around if you can put that in games or not i'm really curious now but if someone gets that right i think it would be really really big I completely agree. Anyway, last question, and you could feel free to pass on this one. You were at Facebook for a couple years, or Facebook and Instagram for a year each. How is Facebook misunderstood, especially in the common narrative today? I think that Facebook is more misunderstood than it is understood. From my time there, I think one common misunderstanding is sort of based on the media portrayal, and in large part, the portrayal of Facebook in the developer community, it's sort of perceived as this sort of this group of people that doesn't care about your privacy, doesn't care about, you know, protecting user information. There's all this false information about Facebook selling data. But while I was there, the sense I got from everyone was that everyone really did deeply care about the users, deeply cared about privacy. And one of the things that I think Facebook has actually done really well is that this sort of radical transparency value ensures that Facebook actually does more to protect people's privacy than I think people appreciate because everyone at Facebook, in my experience, very much sort of does buy into this concept that it's really important to protect user information. It's really important to make people feel safe on the platform. And anytime that that doesn't happen, people are very vocal. (laughs) There's like these internal forums and people will post. And there are a lot of people at Facebook, in my experience, um, sort of protecting that. And I think that's a that's a misconception that many people have, that it's sort of this evil entity that wants to seal your privacy. Okay, Eli, it's been great talking to you, and I'm really excited to see where you go next. Yeah, thank you. It was fun. Wow.